Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. We had no idea what we were looking for. We just knew there was somebody out there in a motor vehicle shooting people and he was going to shoot more people. Obviously, people were terrified. Bob Brown was part of one of the most challenging and unbelievable manhunts in Australia's modern history. In 1987, a group of highly trained police officers from a newly formed tactical response group caught a killer in the rugged outback terrain of the Kimberleys. The man they were in a race against time to catch was Joseph Schwab, who was armed and extremely dangerous. 
Schwab, who was from Germany, had already murdered five people across two states in the remote end of Australia. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims, and what happens next. The group of men involved in the manhunt for Schwab were recently awarded a group bravery citation for their collective act of bravery in extraordinary circumstances. Let's hear from Bob. Bob, can you tell me a bit about who you are and how you came to be involved in this incredible situation with Joseph Schwab? I was uh, retired from police 14 years ago after 34 years in the WA Police. I retired as an inspector. I retired as the officer in charge of the tactical response group. Uh, we were the ones, it was called Special Weapons Section, to a highly sophisticated, highly trained, essentially paramilitary group. That leads us in nicely to what happened in 1987 and how you found yourself being sent out with your specialist trained colleagues to basically hunt for a killer on the loose. I guess there's no other way to describe this. It sounds completely like terrifying and I've seen it described in newspaper headlines as a real life Wolf Creek. I mean, that's probably simplifying it a bit, but you were part of the manhunt for this killer called Joseph Schwab. So tell us a bit about when did you get the call? How did it happen that you found out that you were needed for this really crucial operation to catch this guy? Within the group of or the tactical groups in Australia, we keep ourselves very close. And we're aware there was a manhunt in the Northern Territory for the killer of two people, father and son, who were shot to death by somebody. So we were alerted to the fact that there was a problem. At about 10.30, I was home, uh, and it was simply to attend the office. We were given some very brief details of briefing that three people had been shot to death on the banks of the Pentecost River, west of Wyndham Kununurra on Home Valley Station. Somebody happened across the crime scene, and of course, discovering three bodies, they, they had uh, very quickly uh, left and gone to tell the police. We, at about 12.30 a.m., the crew of eight and a forensic officer, we found ourselves jammed into a little Israeli West Wind jet. The passageway was full of our tactical equipment, uh, we were crammed in. One of the fellows had to sit in the toilet cubicle. We were so crammed in. About four hours later, we landed in Kalanara, which is adjacent to where the crime scene was, and then yeah, straight out to the crime scene. And the bodies of the three people pretty much lay where they had fell. Four, I, won't, I won't go into detail on the crime scene, but there were three West Australians, all from Kalanara, and uh, they had been shot to death and as I said they lay pretty much where they had fallen. At this stage I'll just say and we if you don't mind that we still send out we send out condolences to the family and loved ones of these people. It is as raw to them today as it was then. We can speak about it dispassionately but on my behalf, behalf of TRG, behalf of WA Police, we send out heartfelt condolences. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, I understand that because, I mean, I, I'm thinking as I'm about to 
say the names of the people who were murdered by Joseph Schwab, it does it can sound dispassionate, but the the three people that you spoke of then were Philip Walkermeyer and his fiancee Julie Warren and their friend Terry Bolt. And they were found, as you said, at the Pentecost River on June the 15th, 1987. And you mentioned the two victims prior to that, and they were a father and son, Marcus and Lance Bullen, who were shot dead at the Victoria River on June 9, 1987. And, and this was essentially in two states, wasn't it? You've got Western Australia and you have the Northern Territory. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, this fellow had, uh, had committed his heinous crimes over there and immediately fled over to Western Australia. And they were all camping, weren't they? The the people, they just, you know, going about their business, camping, enjoying the outdoors of that area of Australia. Yeah, they, they'd be fishing on the banks of the Pentecost, fishing for Barramundi. And uh, when we were at the crime scene, uh, it was apparent that we could see tracks where he had come in behind them in a muddy gully. And I can still recall the particular footprints of the shoes he was wearing, which became poignant later on. Uh, very clear uh, boot footprints in the mud where he had snuck up to within metres of them and then ambushed them. Yeah, that was that was the way he attacked them uh, from behind ambush and uh, they stood very little chance, fortunately, my God. It was uh, over fairly quickly, I should think. Yeah, I was going to ask, so essentially this was a like what you'd call a sniper or a sneak attack on people who would have had no idea what was going to happen. No, he parked off and then stalked them, uh, walked up behind them from cover from a ditch, came over the edge of the ditch and began firing at them uh, with a, uh, it turned out to be a Ruger Mini-14 uh, high-powered weapon with a 30-round magazine and that was to become poignant later on as well. For people listening who are from other states in Australia and overseas, because we have a lot of them, what would you tell them about the kind of terrain and the environment of these places where Joseph Schwab committed these crimes? Um, subtropical, extremely hot and uh, uncomfortable during the wet season. Uh, it can be a very harsh environment, very sparsely populated. Uh, relatively small communities, particularly back then. Yeah, very close communities, mostly uh, cattle and tourism, and shares some similarities with far north Queensland and the Northern Territory that, that band across the top of Australia. So it's the true kind of thing we think about when we think about the outback and some of the things in popular culture about the outback, like, you know, I hate to say, refer back to Wolf Creek, but it's sort of what a lot of overseas people think of when they think of the outback. They think of that or just a sort of wild west really of Australia. So this guy, Joseph Schwab, was able to lurk around pretty much unnoticed. I guess what I'm trying to get to is when you arrived, what kind of intelligence did you have on who you were looking for? We had none. This was one of the problems we faced. We didn't know if there was one perpetrator or two or several. We had no idea what we were looking for. We just knew there was somebody out there in a motor vehicle shooting people and he was going to shoot more people. That was our assumption. The whole of the Kimberley essentially shut down. People went to caravan parks and gathered in communities for safety. Because obviously people were terrified, particularly people in the station homesteads. These are massive million hectare cattle stations. Even they had abandoned their stations and gone into places like Fitzroy Crossing and Horse Creek, Broome and Derby for safety. They didn't want to become victims. Certainly nobody was camping out. Those people were stuck out in the wilderness 
they were making their way back to these communities and they were very scared. You can appreciate some of these people coming across a ridge and being confronted by us, um, how terrifying it must have been for them. What were you dressed in, Bob? What what kind of gear do you have to wear when you're in that role? Well, we have a, a black roll and a green roll. A black roll is a suburban area and green roll is camouflage clothing. And, of course, we're, we're armed with military-style weapons. And you said you can appreciate just how terrified these people that were bolting for uh, safety. So we began in the early first few days. We began by putting up an aircraft orbiting 10,000 feet above terrain because it's all dirt roads they were looking for dust plumes from cars and we would go out and set up an ambush to intercept those cars but then within a few days word started coming that we were looking for a Toyota 4Runner and that was because a truck driver who had gone across the Pentecost River at a stone crossing he had seen a fire off to his left and that was the burning remains of the victim's car continued on his way, and then he was overtaken uh, uh, through the dust haze by this Toyota 4Runner. The truck driver said he thought there was only one person in the car, but wasn't sure. And each car that uh, we intercepted, uh, we we had to be very suspicious of and very careful. So that's what we were doing probably in the first five days. And to be truthful, we were exhausted, fatigued and exhausted. We were working around the clock. Not just us, uh, our pilots, every police officer... They're all standing up the roadblocks 24-7, not knowing what to expect. You mentioned there's a a helicopter pilot, a muster helicopter pilot. He's mustering horses from the air and his name is Peter Lutenegger. And I read he was listening to his favourite Slim Dusty songs while he was doing this. And then what does he notice? There was a car 10 kilometres west of Fitzroy Crossing and three kilometres in the bush in a place it should not have been. He immediately became suspicious. He reduced his altitude, went down, had a very quick look, realised the car had been camouflaged. As you can appreciate, alarm bells ringing. He he very quickly flew off to the Fitzroy Crossing Police Station, landed in the street out the front. That was then passed on to investigators, passed it back to us. We were several hundred kilometres to the north. So meanwhile, there's this hunt for this Joseph Schwab, you don't know that that's who he is at this point. You're not sure if it's one person, two people. What's he doing at the moment while all this is happening, while you're looking for him? He's managed to make his way from where we were, probably through Wyndham and Cunanara, then turn west on a Great Eastern Highway. We know he went through Fitzroy Crossing and then just turned left and gone through trackless country up onto the banks of a dry creek bed. He has camped there for a number of days. This is what we've found out since. There's a belief that he was going to go into Fitzroy Crossing. He's very heavily armed. He had four or five firearms, two of them high-powered. He has shotguns. The whole footwell, his passenger seat, uh, was stacked uh, with ammunition. So, yeah, anybody he encountered, the opportunity arose, he was going to shoot them. We all of us believe that had he not been stopped, he would have killed many, many more people. What does the helicopter pilot, Peter, what does he see and what's he? how's he helping you? He went up with some colleagues in a light aircraft to pinpoint where the car was. We were given the exact location. From there, we formed an extended line and began walking towards the spot that had been pinpointed as his campsite. 
we started to hear high-powered rifle fire, it was it was pretty consistent as we walked forward. So we knew we were walking into trouble. The high-powered rifle fire, as we found out, was him taking pot shots at our police aircraft. And if you ever heard high-powered rifle fire, uh, you'll know it can be pretty pretty terrifying. Yeah. I've only really heard it on film. So if I was standing there hearing this, what what am I hearing? What's it going to be like? It's a, it's a massive sound, but you can actually feel a concussion. As we got closer, and we got within about uh, 400 metres when uh, we lost communication with the police aircraft, Murphy's Law. But we had a reasonable idea of the direction. But we'd also trained with our police aircraft, so they knew and we knew. When communication was lost, they could fly a pattern directly over us, directly over the campsite uh, to guide us in. Various things uh, they, they do uh, just through recognition, waving their wings and what have you. But we knew what they, they were doing, but that necessitated coming down to a fairly low level for our pilots, very brave people. And they overflew the campsite a number of times. We still couldn't see it. The bush was moderately dense. We're in a dry creek bed. We're very, very exposed. And as I said, you could hear the high-powered fire. It turned out it was a 7.62 Seiko, I think, a telescopic sighted rifle. We could hear uh, the continuous shooting. And as I said, it was at the pilot. He couldn't see us. We couldn't see him. But we started to walk forward. We had a very brief briefing in the creek bed. At that time, we, we knew that we could be in deep trouble. I mean, we all of us um, thought about our our mortality. Uh, I'm sure I look at my colleagues, I've trained extensively with them, and I could see the look in their eyes. And uh, so we all thought about our mortality in our families, but the job was there to be done. So we continue to walk forward. Fortunately, at this time, police aircraft had begun orbiting on the opposite side of the campsite to us, and this was drawing the attention of SWAB and the rifle fire. Police and aircraft thought they had been shot. Um, but as it turned out, it was probably the sonic crack of uh, supersonic rounds going past their cabin. as a, a distinct cracking sound. So it's the bullets flying in the air past them? It breaks the sound barrier. Uh, these high-powered weapons, they break the sound barrier. There's a distinct crack as they passed you. It's nothing to do with the the uh, with the um, explosion from the barrel, if you like. It's, it's the actual flight of the projectile breaking the sound barrier. And they thought uh, they had been hit. At that time, one of my colleagues off to the left spotted the camouflage vehicle and indicated to everybody through hand signals. No talking, of course. And uh, that coincided with the police aircraft having to go away to prove its airworthiness because I thought they'd been hit. But anyway, we uh, immediately ran to place of cover. What's a place of cover, Bob? What's that for the listeners? Think of anthills, um, uh, shrubs, trees, anything that could cover you from sight uh, and cover you from fire. Anthills were in abundance, so anthills were the preferred cover. Pretty hard to get through one of those. What are you dressed in at this point? You in your camo gear? In camouflage gear. Um, yeah. This is very early days of PRG. They don't have. We didn't have the sophisticated um, ceramic vests and whatever they do today. 
we'd had no more previous. We had essentially military camouflage gear. Um, we had belt orders that contained a 92 F Beretta, semi automatic 9mm, a knife, um, first aid. We all carried our own personal first aid. And that was basically it. A variety of weapons M16s, M14s, SLRs, a couple of high power sniper rifles. Uh, so we had a, a fairly interesting mix of, of weaponry. But that's what it was in those days. The only weapon that we had that was was similar was the 9mm 92F Beretta 9mm. But anyway, we, we ran to cover and it was coincidental that he was directly in front of me. My colleagues were strung out to the left. He was directly in front of me and I had the best view of him. So this is Joseph Schwab is directly in front of you? 40 metres, directly in front of me. He was naked from the waist up, had camouflage trousers on. Uh, he was at the front the rhubarb of his car, the front of his car. As I watched, he chambered around and fired off a shot at the police aircraft. And then, obviously, he had become aware just through his peripheral vision of us approaching. He looked to his left, turned swiftly, and fired off an unsighted round at somebody to my left. Actually, I was probably the closest, and the furthest away was probably... 60 or 80 metres. What's going through your mind at this point and how many bullets is in a round? Uh, there's only there's one round, single projectile. You fire it off, it's a bolt-action rifle. So you chamber one round, fire chamber another round, fire it. This is the weapon he had. I had a uh, fully automatic uh, M16, which is a military weapon, a 30-round magazine. That was my primary weapon. As I said, the secondary weapon was uh, for a, what What happened then... But as this is all happening very quickly, he then chambered another round and began to take a very careful sight through his telescopic sight. Obviously, one of my colleagues, this sort of forced my hand. I had no choice then but to sight on him, uh, particularly his forearms and the weapon itself. I'm only 40 metres away, and a reasonable shot, as you can appreciate. I fired off a two-round burst. I had my weapon on fully automatic. I fired off a two-round burst. I didn't see the fall of shot, but he ran unarmed back across the front of his car and got into the open door of the driver's side. My colleague and team leader, uh, Bill Matson, to my left, then called on him to surrender, stop firing and surrender, identified us as police. Uh, this was ignored. One of my colleagues then put in a member, they were John Dent, had a, uh, what was called an M203, which is a grenade launcher that slung beneath uh, his M16. And he fired off in very quick succession three or four uh, barricade-penetrating pyrotechnic uh, CS gas rounds into the car. For want of a better description for people's... If it's, sort of like it's a rocket-firing weapon called an M203. Um, and they, these ricocheted off the car... It was uh, like a pocket of snare for a very short period of time. And of course, the side effect was set fire to the tinder dry scrub, scrub as well. It's a lot of danger at all points. You've got the guns, you've got very dry environment. What was his state of mind that you could observe? What was his behaviour like? Was it hectic or was it quite businesslike? Uh, Emily, it all happened very quickly. I got no doubt he was startled. got no idea of his state of mind. People that 
behaved as as he had been behaving uh, in all likelihood crazy. After I fired the initial two shots, he sprinted to his car, the Seiko weapon, uh, the four-stock had been shattered. Probably at that time, he had lost his left thumb. So even despite the fact that he lost his left thumb, he still, per the instruction that had been given to generally open fire, the effect of the CS gas drove him out of the car. Despite his very serious injuries to his hand, he's come out with the Ruger Mini 14 carbine that I described earlier. The very lightweight, deadly weapon that can be fired one-handed. And he started he started to fire that. That was also equipped with a 30 round magazine. So he had a lot of uh, a lot of ammunition to spare. He uh, he began firing generally at us. One stage around us passed so close to a colleague that it has gone through pressure bandage, part of the first aid kit we all wore, that was on the sleeve of his shirt, has passed through that, missing his flesh, uh, but passing through the bandage, his bone was in trindle. So very lucky boy. Should get a lot of ticket. But then he, he because of the tinder drive scabbard being set fire, he disappeared very quickly into that dense smoke and we lost sight of him. He was still firing back. We knew that he could probably see us. Um, and every, all as the opportunity arose, going on sound and more than anything else, and flashes that we could see of him, they all fired as the opportunity arose. They said there's a variety of weapons. I think Barry Lansdown had a sniper weapon. After the break, Bob tells us how his elite police training prepared he and his team for the fight of their lives. This is also a good time to thank our patrons. Patrons help us keep Australian true crime rolling each week. If you can chip in, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Aust true crime pod. Thank you to Caroline Atkinson, Kirsten McEncrow, Elsa Wakefield, Siobhan Daly and Amber. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What you're describing to me is it's like all your senses are really key here with this situation and there's smoke, there's sound. What What's happening? How do your senses compensate in this very stressful situation? Because I know we've spoken about how, you know, you're trained to cope in stressful situations, but this sounds about as stressful as it can get. Well, fair think of it. It really was. It was, um, interestingly, the, the, the sounds a bit of, a bit of calm uh, because we were highly trained, essentially, paramilitary. But I know personally, uh, there was a, a sense of purpose and a sense of calm. There's certainly no, no panic among the team. To describe it, yeah, there was a, a sense of purpose, sense of calm, there's a job to be done. There were things going through your mind very quickly. We knew we had to maintain momentum. Once he disappeared from sight, we could not let him settle. We could not let him take an aim shot. If he was going to fire back at us, it had to be instinctive. And one of the most important aspects of what we were doing was to maintain momentum. We took a backward step of letting him give an opportunity to settle, take aim shots, and the outcome would have been vastly different. So that was when three of us decided to go forward. I was closer, so I went forward first, diagonally, keeping the car between me and where I thought he was. I went to an anthill, then I called forward the team leader, Bill, is what we're trained to do. It's a, it's a sort of a leapfrogging fire and movement exercise. I then covered him as he came to an anthill just adjacent to me. And then Don McPherson, one of my colleagues, came to us. And I called on them to cover me. I ran to the car. I was then joined by Bill and Don, the others, Dennis Collinson, Barry Lansdowne, Eddie Trindle and Johnny Dent, all providing covering fire for our safety at this time. And as you can appreciate, there's a bit of a cone effect because we're spread out over 80 metres. We've got one target, target. As we're moving forward, we're all coning in closer together. So that some of their covering fire, I think I could feel the concussions that passed by me. But then when we got there, the fire had started to take hold of the car, Schwab's car, particularly the tarpaulin that was covering it. We're left in a bit of a dilemma. Um, we didn't know if there was anybody in the car. We knew, certainly I was aware of the evidentiary value of the car. Certainly if he'd committed other murders, there was evidence to be gained from that vehicle, so it was crucial if the opportunity arose to save it. Bill and I and Don took, ripped the burning camouflage cover tarpaulin off the car. I gave my weapon to Bill, and I said I was going to move it. I got in the passenger side, if I could, that was. I got in the passenger side, leaned across, fortunately found the keys in the ignition. I slid across, unfortunately, on a, my belt order containing my secondary weapon. It came caught on a staunch and for a seat belt. So I had to hit the release button and drop that on the passenger seat and slid across put it in the neutral, started the car, and the, my two colleagues called out, we're covering, I called out cover, and I drove the vehicle from the flames. I can recall the windows were open, and the back of my hair was singed. Flames were leaping, licking inside the car. 
they'd go into cover. Independently, I drove 20, 30 metres out of the flames. I yelled to them, cover. I got out and keeping very low, ran back to their location. So the three of us were sitting side by side. My other colleagues were prevented from coming in. If they'd been in my position, I would have done the same thing. For my other two colleagues, I would have done the same thing. But unfortunately, they were kept back in a safety covering position, making sure that we were safe. If he popped his head up, they were going to keep us safe. So it was very important. But anyway, we found ourselves out the front. And uh, it was the flames had become so intense. Trauma is still firing back at this stage, but it's it's just not a it's not a it's not aimed shooting. It's not a, uh, and that was our intention of keeping him on the move. We were lying there. I looked over and I could see the flames starting to overtake the car again because I drew it into an area that had not been burnt out. And uh, for whatever reason, I thought, well, can't let it go now. And I, it may be at this stage that Schwab is dead. I don't know. That, that, like, we, there's still live firing going on because we were being covered and uh, taking no chances. My colleagues were still putting in covering fire or suppressing fire. But anyway, I, I made the decision to go back to the car undercover, got into it again, drove it back into an area that had been burnt out just within a few feet of where Bill and Don were in, in cover. And I got out and went back to them. And we were at the front of the burnt area. The fire became so intense that the decision was then made to fall back. Uh, Don and Bill went back probably 30, 40 metres. I was about to join them. But uh, the tree, the shrub I was taking cover behind, unbeknown to me, had been used as an ammunition storage area by Swab. There are probably a thousand rounds of ammunition in boxes. And this was, I couldn't see it, but it was just adjacent to my head. And he said the fire was pretty intense. So getting the picture, it's very tumultuous, very confusing, uh, intense fire. Just as I was about to leave, the heat became so intense, the rounds, the ammunition started to explode. And once it started to explode, there was no stopping it. It was just going to go into it all and expend it. That was probably about a minute or so where I just had to hug the ground. At one stage, one of the projectiles just burst and cut my left temple. And I, interesting, I like, felt the blood, looked at it. And the round that hit my temple had four inches just in front of me. I actually, for whatever reason, had nothing better to do, mind you. I picked, picked it up and, and it was just a very distorted cartridge case. I, I slipped it into my pocket. And I still have that as a souvenir today. Oh, I can understand that. I mean, you really could have been killed. That's the fact. All of us, all of us could have, any one of us could have been killed. Um, and it's uh, the, the firefight, it seemed like it lasted a long time. It probably lasted no more than 10 minutes. And at this stage, the ammunition I was I was grounded by stopped, pretty much stopped. Still periodic little explosions, but they're relatively harmless. You know these things; they're not fired out of a gun; they can explode like crackers. But anyway, uh, just as this had finished, uh, the police aircraft returned and zoomed across the top of me, and I swear that I heard the left wing tip strike the foliage atop of these 25 metre. 
I saw the aircraft, and interestingly, I saw an arm that extended from the co-pilot's seat that had a camera in it with all the strange things. So the Northern Territory co-pilot had a camera with a motor drive, and he's, he's taking taking pictures as he's zooming across us. And those, those pictures were presented to the coroner and uh, part of the coronial inquest. But uh, then the aircraft zoomed up at a very steep angle. Uh, the pilot communication returned by this stage, and the pilot said to our crew that they were just behind me that they saw somebody at the front of the lead man, which was me. He's about 20 feet in front of the lead man. He was lying uh, prone. They then came back a second time, similar manoeuvre, spectacular to watch, spectacular to watch, very brave people. And they then radioed that the person still hadn't moved and they could see blood on his torso. That was a signal for us to go forward. So my colleagues behind me stood up, came forward to me, I stood up, we walked forward, and there ended the life of Joseph Schwab. Face down, he'd been struck between the shoulder blades, the projectile had exited his sternum, and he had died before he hit the ground. So quickly was it that the weapon he was carrying was speared, the barrel was speared into the ground beside him and remained upright. Wow. So he'd like fallen. So how would that have worked? The, the gun would have, he would have fallen and the gun just stuck in the ground? Emily, he was dead before he hit the ground. The, right. The, the wound was catastrophic. Right. He is, he. I can see that his left arm was, was gone, and that had probably happened earlier. Was, like I said, it was an entry wound, 20 shoulder blades. We don't know who, who fired the shot. It was, uh, like I said, it was tumultuous. There was dense building clouds of smoke. There was fire. Uh, he had, as it was later found out by our forensic people, that he had gone from tree to anthill to anthill to tree uh, in some kind of quasi-military manoeuvre, engaging us from cover. Because uh, there was little, there was rounds scattered around these various individual points. He was employing a, a, a fire and cover movement himself. Like I said, nobody knows will know who fired the round, exited his body, and continued on, and um, and was lost forever. Uh, so that's essentially, like I said, that ended the life of Joseph Schwab. And um, would have loved to have spoken to him, but we'll never ever know what motivated him to kill people. But as I also said to you earlier, I think he was crazy, and there's indications of that. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about some of the things that led you to believe that. I mean, what we do know about him is that he, he was he was German, he had an interest in guns, he'd been a member of several gun clubs, both in Germany and I think when he travelled to Australia, he'd been to Australia a few times, was a bit of a loner. People didn't really know him, did they? No, but uh, you can rest assured there's his family in Germany that loved and cherished him and they would be as confused today as they were then as to why he behaved like he did. But yeah, all those things uh, were subject of some kind of inquiry by the media and of course Interpol, by all accounts he was a little strange. Why he behaved like he did, we will never ever know. And that's something we explore a lot on this podcast, We, you know, the ripple effect of crime and it's the families of the people who were murdered, I mean their lives have been changed forever the friends of those people 
But also we often talk about the families of the people who commit the crimes because for for many of them that changes their lives as well because they're forever kind of associated with that person's acts and it's very hard to convey information about the person that you knew to a public who do not want to know really anything about, you know, that this person may have had a life or been functioning in some way at some stage. It was reported in the media at the time, the truth of it, I don't know, but uh, they did not believe he had done what had behaved the way he had. They, they thought him innocent. But there were was, was, was things that I observed myself very quickly led me to believe this was the man that, that had perpetrated the murders. I spoke to you earlier about that distinctive shoe prints in the clay. Yes. On the Pentecost River. Yeah, tell us about the significance of the shoes, the boots that he wore. One of the things I first saw, the back of the mute was open. And uh, obviously there was a period there when we were observing things before we went away. Oh, we had to fight the fire. We, we, we spent 15, 20 minutes putting this bloody bushfire out. Um, but anyway, uh, there was a period of observation before we went away and bivouacked, and I, I, I just looked at a pair of shoes in the back of his car, and the distinctive sole immediately associated that with a crime scene, a distinctive shoe pattern, and there were a pair of boots in the back of the car. There was also half a dozen pairs of large water buffalo horns. They'd been shooting water buffalo in the Northern Territory, so these putrid things were in the back as well. I did walk around the camp, and I had the opportunity briefly to walk around the camp. I knew he'd been there at least three days because in the military, if you're bivouacked, you build your own toilet. It's simply a hole in the ground, but it's done as a process to it. If you're in the military, you've got military training. You dig a hole, certain dimension, certain depth. You take the topsoil off, you put it to one side. You dig your hole, you have a crack, you put back the subsoil, and you cover it with the topsoil. And that disguises the fact you've ever camped in that area to, to an enemy. It's a military thing. And this, this man, I observed that he had built three of these military-style ship pits, excuse the French. That's all right. So um, really, yeah, it makes sense that nature calls and you've got to not let people know that you've been there. That's part of the military, I suppose, his military training. But nonsensically, he had done his business beside these ship pits and never covered it in. I know that because I could see the, the dehydrated, shriveled up excrement beside these toilet pits. And that to me obviously just didn't make sense. The man had gone to all this trouble to build these things or construct them and then done his business beside them. So yeah, in a strange way, I thought, no, nah, this is crazy behaviour. Now, obviously, uh, Emily, he had to be crazy to behave the way he was. Normal people don't. Um, he was obviously a very, very disturbed man. As you said, look, I think I have I've read my fair share of true crime and I think that there is something in some people defecate as a kind of way of being excited or it's it, – I think it's a thing. So your, your Spider-Man instincts, your spidey instincts in that regard, I think there's something to it that it just doesn't make sense to you that you go to all that trouble to – to dig those pits and then not use them. It's a bit strange. Yeah, well, in fact, in fact, difficult beside them. We, uh, as I said to you, once we found him, yeah, we had to do a little bit of uh, just to, 
just to make sure the area was secure as part of our standard operating procedures. So that walk around uh, was conducted very briefly. That's when I observed the shoes and the horns of the water buffalo and the shit pits. And uh, as soon as that was over, it's essentially a crime scene. That means we can't con- couldn't contaminate it in any way. We had nothing to do with it. We walked away after we'd put the fire out, and it was actually, that was one of the most exhausting aspects of it, is we all got branches and, and smashed away at this, at the fringes of the fire until we put it out. And we walked away 80 metres, uh, camped, sat, and waited for uh, the investigators to trundle their way in from Fitzroy Crossing. Uh, we were then, we, we were never treated like, like criminals, but they have to go through that procedure. Our weapons were taken off us. Uh, they're all documented. Uh, we were then isolated, taken into Fitzroy Crossing, into the courthouse, uh, and isolated from everybody. Uh, some preliminary discussions would take place. But it, was, it was obvious to everybody that it was that it was that it was self-righteous. There was no, you know, we tried to arrest this man. He was never going to be arrested. It's unfortunate that he had to die. No, but if we hadn't, some of us and certainly others would be dead. So there was a sense of relief and a sense of almost exaltation that this man had been stopped. We were proud of the job we'd done and we were treated very well in the Fitzroy Crossing Courthouse. Then, following that, we were then taken back to, in a police aircraft, we were kept isolated at Home Valley Station uh, for four or five days, essentially to recover and to keep us away from the hurly burly of the post incident inquiries and media. Mm. I was going to ask, Bob, what, what do you recall? I, I know you just said that you were sort of kept separate from that, but what do you recall in those weeks after or at the time about the the public attention on this case because there was a lot of media and this was before the internet and it was before all that stuff. It was, you know, newspapers, radio, TV. Do you remember anything of that? I remember there was a, an outpouring of, of relief uh, from people and that was conveyed to us just how relieved people were, how thankful they were uh, of the task we performed. Not just us, point, you know, I'd, I'd come back to it. I emphasise just how hard-working our investigators were and how dangerous it was for general police in the Kimberley that kept their community safe during this time. There was euphoria in the media and the local people. Their gratitude was conveyed to us through various means. But then we were we were taken away and isolated uh, for a period of four or five days. Bearing in mind, we were exhausted. Up until to and including the confrontation with Swan, we were on the edge of extreme exhaustion. So it was important for us, uh, once the job had been done, to get away and recover emotionally and physically. What was the understanding of post-traumatic stress back then? I mean, I'm assuming that you were each affected in your own way by this, but what was the understanding back then and the the help that you got for that? Yeah, we're dealing with a different era. There was still a a recognition that wasn't called post-traumatic stress. There's a recognition that we'd been through a stressful event and each and every one of us offered counselling. We didn't take up the offer. The team that went up there were essentially all special weapons section people. We had been, in the four, three years of the formation of TRG, we had taken the lead role in every armed 
confrontation or violent incident in Perth in Western Australia, where our team had been come under fire or been involved in incidents where fired at four times prior to this. So we were, we're no shrinking violence. So our debrief was essentially to sit back at the Home Valley Station, hosted by these wonderful people, and relax, have a beer. We went fishing while this was all being sorted out further south. So that was what we did today, maybe handled differently. But look, each and every one of us was affected in some way. I'm a reasonably resilient character, as were my colleagues. But even today, I spent a lot of time in the outback or in isolated country because I'm a miner and a prospector these days. And I would leave nothing to chance if, I, if, if I'm approached by a stranger or a car out in the bush, I make sure that I am very aware and in a position to protect the people I'm responsible for, the people I love and myself. I'm very, very vigilant, very much more vigilant than I used to be. So if that's, a, that's an effect, uh, a negative effect, so be it. I have no nightmares. I have no concerns about what happened. Uh, I know that we're trained for it and I'll do it again. But each and every one of us risked our lives that day, as you will appreciate. Absolutely. And we're recognised for it recently. So. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. So you did listening to this account and, you know, and you acknowledge it and rightfully so that you all risked your lives by what you did that day. But it's 30 years down the track, you, or more than 30 years, you're recognised with a, a bravery award. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, false modesty aside, and we, it, it was, and I'll say this on behalf of my colleagues, it was one of the probably the most courageous operations in the annals of police history, in the annals of Australian police history. And I cast modesty aside when I say that. But we didn't expect recognition. As I said, TRG groups Australia-wide are doing this type of thing day in, day out. It often doesn't, most often doesn't result in the death of anybody. But every day, while we sleep safe in our beds, tactical response groups are kicking indoors, saving people from domestic violence, extreme violence, biome offences, a whole range of things. So there's no individual recognition uh, provided to team members. But and as time went by, the reasons for it probably dissipated. And then for whatever reason, somebody, now remain anonymous, put us forward for the Australian Honours Day list for a group bravery citation. Came out of the blue. And those of us that could gather at Government House recently, the Governor, Kim Beasley, presented us with a group citation bravery award. Barry and uh, Don and our pilot, Baby Shan, very importantly, was uh, included. Unfortunately, Bill Matson passed away some years ago, a team leader. But he was represented by his son, Adam, and Mary, his widow, and Dennis Collinson, myself, Eddie Trindle and Johnny Dent uh, stood up proudly and uh, received our bravery citation. And Kim Boosley said some very kind things and poignant things about police and the role they play in the community. I think, pay respect to my colleagues in the current day TRG 
Well, it's a very deserved award and thank you for talking to me. I feel like it's the unsatisfying part of, as you said, never really knowing why someone's done something, this this person, because they died. But it's just such a, a horrible and strange part of Australian criminal and policing history that, that this happened and, as said, ter- just devastating for the people who died and his name's known more than than the people he killed and that, that often happens with these kind of cases. It was a documentary and there's been a number of stories written about it. And one was a, a documentary, uh, I think it was called Kimberly Killer, made by one of the commercial television stations or for the commercial television stations. And uh, as the officer in charge of TOG, I was asked to participate and declined. But then had a discussion about it, and I think the commissioner was involved. I'm not sure what level it went to, but uh, it was decided that I should participate because they were going to make the documentary anyway, and uh, perhaps I should participate to give the police side of the story. As it turned out, I wasn't happy with it. I'm a little ashamed that I did participate uh, because there's a lot of sensationalised shooting and and, uh, I think was shot on the banks of the Murray River rather than up in the Kimberley, and I understand why they made it. I have no issue with them. It's a commercial. It was a commercial enterprise. But if you ever get to see it, you'll understand what I mean. There's a lot of sensationalised nonsense in it. Things like condolences to the family and, and what have you. It was important they were in there, but, uh, but for whatever reason, they weren't. But anyway, after the airing of this documentary, I had a call from the niece of one of the people. I think it was Mr Bullen. And she was in tears. And she said, why did you do it? And she was in tears. She was distraught. And um, I told her that why we'd participated. And uh, I talked to her at length. And I wouldn't say we became friends, but she understood and thanked me for talking to her about it and getting her to understand why we participated. I would rather have not. And as I said, I feel uh, a degree of shame that we did. What's done is done. You had no control over how they edited it, though. Yeah. But that's the kind of emotion this... Many, many years later, and these people very much miss the people, the victims. It's a terrible thing, and we'll live with them forever. They'll live with us forever, and as I said to you earlier, we will never, ever, ever know why he behaved like he did. That's a very poignant way to finish this, I think. Thank you for that, Bob. Once again, thank you to our patrons who help us to make this podcast each week. Thank you to Shay, Nikki Nolan, Leah Simon, Sarah Jane Young and Trish. This podcast was made in collaboration with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.